think as Christians, our, uh, the one thing we can do is we can recognize that and we can show others that our identity is found in Christ. It's not found in um, it's not found in our, our racial makeup. It's not found in our economic class. It's found in Christ alone. And that was the voice of Joe Carter. He is a senior editor here at the Acton Institute, and today he's going to be talking with our associate producer, Caroline Roberts, about his recent articles on the Acton Power blog. You can find him there, Five Facts About Antifa and Five Facts About the Alt-Right. He's going to hash out some common misconceptions of those groups and explains uh, how we can best counteract their narrative, which is uh, pretty poisonous at times. And uh, before we go too much further, I want to welcome you to this edition of Radio Free Acton. Hi, everybody. Mark Vandermoss back with you after a bit of time away. Had a family uh, issue to deal with, a death in the family. And uh, although that's a tough thing to deal with, it's always good to have folks who can back you up. And I've had a great uh, crew here who have picked up the slack for me. Thanks uh, so much to uh, to Carolyn Roberts, to uh, uh, Bruce Edward Walker uh, for filling in, and uh, and Daniel Menjivar as well, producer as well here at uh, Radio Free Act. And the, those three more than anybody else have uh, have really pulled the weight over the last couple of weeks, and I want them to know just how much I appreciate their health. But it's good to be back. Uh, as I said, we'll be talking with uh, Joe Carter in just a little bit, and then joining us uh, for Radio Free Acton's cultural commentary segment. We call it Upstream. It's hosted by Bruce Edward Walker. We're going to be talking this week with Gregory Wolf, editor of Image Magazine, based out of Seattle. And Wolf is going to review the work of expressionist painter Rene Riddell. Uh, Bruce and uh, Gregory will connect Riddell's art with Russell Kirk, who is, of course, the author of The Conservative Mind, among many other books, and a Uh, an early supporter of the Acton Institute. He praised her work. So uh, it's going to be an interesting discussion coming up here on Upstream and uh, another great edition of Radio Free Acton for you here uh, on the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. So without further ado, let's uh, get to the meat of the podcast and toss the mic over to Carolyn Roberts talking with Joe Carter here on Radio Free Acton. Roberts, associate producer of Radio Free Acton, and I'm here in the studio at Acton's office in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and it is my pleasure to introduce to you our guest speaker that we have over the phone today, Joe Carter. Joe is a senior editor here at Acton Institute and is an adjunct professor of journalism at Patrick Henry College. Thanks for coming on the show today, Joe. Well, thanks for having me on. On this edition of Radio Free Acton, we are going to be talking about a hot topic in the news currently, Antifa and the alt-right. Joe, you've written some recent articles for the Acton Institute blog explaining some of the most important facts to understand about these recent controversial and violent groups. Joe, where exactly did the name of the group Antifa come from, and what is their goal? Well, Antifa is short for anti-fascist, and uh, it's kind of they take their name from groups from the 1920s and 1930s, who um, mostly communist groups who fought the, uh, the Nazis in, in Germany and throughout Europe. And their goal is kind of to opposition to fascism, which fascism is defined how they define it is uh, kind of ethno-nationalist movements, such as the neo-Nazis, the alt-right, the KKK, etc. The Department of Homeland Security classified Antifa's activities as domestic terrorist violence. Would you agree with this? I think we've got to be careful about uh, defining groups as groups, domestic violence, when 
certain members of those groups are engaged in domestic violence. I think we've got to be careful making a distinction because it's too easy for the government to label a group, and anybody who's loosely associated with that can be uh, considered a terrorist. Uh, but I think the, some of the actions are certainly terroristic. The, the, the way certain people at the rallies recently had engaged in violence, uh, tried to shut down free speech, um, shut down the assembly. So I think we have to, um, we have to uh, make sure that we're not overly broad in how we define these groups and how we uh, label them. But I think we also got to be careful with that and recognize there's a real danger with these groups. And there is a real danger with uh, domestic terrorist cells developing within these, within these organizations. And Antifa has been noted for its clash with alt-right groups, especially during the chaotic protests that happened in Charlottesville in August. The climate today seems muddled with terms like neo-Nazi, Antifa, alt-right, and white nationalist. It seems many people have a wrong idolatry of whiteness. And how do you believe Christians are ultimately supposed to respond in the midst of these groups being on the rise? Uh, that's a good question. It's, it's um, There's a lot of animosity and a lot of, uh, especially since the 2008, the Great Recession, there's a lot of economic anxiety out there and a lot of people looking to blame uh, their lives on on certain kind of broader movements. And I think one of them is um, xenophobia and racism, the idea that brown-skinned people are coming into America and taking this, uh, white people's jobs. And so it causes kind of racial animosity that kind of draws people to these groups like the alt-right that kind of show the solution is that if we would just band together as white people and, you know, kind of take on the racial identity of some other groups that we can, we can kind of push back against this kind of return to the glory days of, of the past. Uh, and I think, you know, it's a very dangerous anti-Christian ideology. If you could maybe define one common misconception about groups like these Antifa or alt-right, what would you say that is? Well, I think like if we say Antifa, one of the common misconceptions is it's, a, it's an actual organization. It's a uh, like, say, the Black Lives Matter movement or the or even the Tea Party protest movement kind of became a formal organization. There is no formal organization in Antifa. It's just kind of a loose uh, groups who kind of band together at certain times. They can use the Internet to organize rallies or organize uh, action at rallies to um, organize. But there's no actual organization. There's no financing. There's no big you know, somebody behind it. Um, on the alt-right, it's a little bit different. There are certain groups that are associated that are kind of developed around the alt-right and around the, the white identity movement. Uh, so I think it's uh, we got to be careful about saying the alt-right is an actual movement and the alt-left is an actual thing. It's just Antifa and these kind of loose organizations that spring up now and then. I think uh, I think pretty soon the Antifa is probably going to fade away just as it did the anti-globalization movement, and they're going to become something else. Uh, but while they're existing, they're going to probably be a lot of dangers. There's a lot of violence that's going to be uh, followed in their actions. And also, I think as these groups are starting to be a little misconceived by the public, there's a desire to want to categorize them and try to define whether or not they fit into a left or a right political sphere. Do you think that this is wise to do? Uh, no, and for, two, and for two reasons. First, there's there's this kind of a theory called the horseshoe theory that says that uh, groups on the, the far right and far left are actually more like a horseshoe shape. They're not on the far extremes or far away from each other. They're more like a horseshoe where they're kind of closer together. They really do have a lot of ideas in common. Like the all right is very socialist oriented, just like Antifa is very socialist oriented. Um, and so it's if we kind of see them as too far apart, we kind of miss that they're, they share a lot in common. 
and also the alt-right, there's kind of a misconception, especially the media has very, you know, really been pushing this lately, that the alt-right is just Trump supporters or Trump voters or uh, just paleo-conservatives or, you know, paleo-libertarians. And that's not what it is at all. I mean, the alt-right has been around since about 2008. They've had that label around. They use that label for a long time. And it's only recently that the media has kind of picked up on it, and they kind of try to paint everybody who disagree they disagree with as being a part of the alt-right. And because the alt-right is associated with white supremacism and white identity movement, that means all conservatives or all libertarians are kind of tainted by association. And it's funny. You also mentioned identity in what you just said, that white identity. And it seems as if these groups are kind of starting to crawl out of the woodwork a little bit. And everyone at the moment seems to be obsessed with identity a lot. Why do you think that is? Uh, well, the left has really taken on since probably the 1990s, kind of taken on this idea that uh, your identity uh, is the most important thing about you, whether it's a racial identity, whether it's your identity as a disabled person or as a as a woman or as a uh, LGBT uh, member or you know, there's so many identities, and this is kind of what they call intersectionality, how they all kind of blend together and define who you are. And to kind of push back against this, there's a lot of these kind of um, people. I mean, the alt right is usually uh, college ed- educated people. So what happens is these guys go to college, and they hear about all these other groups have their identity, and they and um, so they kind of what defines them or what identity they can have. And all they can really latch on to is the, the whiteness, their, uh, their connection to other white people. And so that's kind of why they're, uh, they kind of latched on the leftist racial identity movements and kind of taking them as their own to kind of, kind of find fulfillment in uh, an identity of their own that they can kind of push the kind of same agendas as the other groups. How, how do you suggest that we best begin to kind of counter this obsession with identity that seems to be leading people astray and into groups like this that um, cause stress? Well, I think as Christians, our, uh, the one thing we can do is we can recognize that and we can show others that our identity is found in Christ. It's not found in, um, it's not found in our, our racial makeup. It's not found in our economic class. It's found in Christ alone. So I think that as Christians, we can kind of feel comfort in knowing that that is where our identity lies, and we don't need all these other ways to associate. Um, but I think also we need to kind of find a way to, to explain to people how the broader economic trends affect them. There's a lot of economic anxiety I think is driving a lot of this. I think we need more education on economics to really explain to people. For example, there's a lot of people that think the uh, free markets caused the Great Depression, that they caused the housing crisis and the banking crisis. And by kind of showing them it's not really that, we don't need more government to, to take all this it kind of lessens the need to latch on to an identity to lobby for the government to kind of rescue you from uh, these economic uh, trends that we're seeing. Well, thank you very much for your time and your insights today, Joe. You can find Joe's informative articles, Five Facts About Antifa and Five Facts About the Alt-Right at blog.acton.org. Thank you very much for your time, Joe. Thanks so much for having me on. For over 25 years, the Acton Institute in Grand Rapids, Michigan, has strived to help shape a society that is secure, free, and virtuous. As public virtue declines, so have many of our economic, political, and religious freedoms. On December 6th, Acton invites you to join us at our Public Spirit and Public Virtue Conference in Washington, D.C., 
This is your chance to engage with notable speakers and discover how to remain a civilization marked by order and public tranquility. To register or learn more, visit acton.org slash events. That's A-C-T-O-N dot O-R-G slash events. Hello and welcome to this week's edition of Upstream. And today we're going to talk about something related to the visual arts. Although it's difficult to do so with podcast recording, we also will be publishing some of the artist work in question on the Acton Power blog. So look for that. And today I'll be talking with Gregory Wolf who is the editor of Image Magazine, based out of Seattle. And if you're not familiar with it, I highly encourage you to, to look into it. And Mr. Wolf has published a review of the artist in question, Renee Riddell. There's a new overview of her work that has been published by her family. And in the University Bookman, Greg Wolf wrote, Testimony to a Catholic Existentialist, and we're going to be discussing that just a little bit, and uh, the appreciation that Russell Kirk, the author of uh, The Conservative Mind, had for Riddell's work as well. So good morning, Mr. Wolf. How are you? I am well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, I very much appreciate the fact that uh, you uh, got up at 7.30 in the morning to uh, talk to us, so I, I'm hoping that you've had a cup of coffee so you can enlighten us all about the work of Rene Riddell. Well, we West Coasters are used to this kind of shabby treatment, but uh, we do our <laughs> best, and we try not to, you know, try not to grumble too much. Let's let's talk a little bit about uh, Rene Riddell. The, the name of uh, the new overview book of her work that has been published by her, uh, her son's publication company, if you could give us the title and maybe a little bit of background information on Rene Riddell. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's called Rene Riddell, Web of Circumstance, um, which I quite like, actually, as a subtitle. It's one of the few things about the editors uh, and the, the writers part of the book that I like. Um, it's a very suggestive title, Web of Circumstance. It's a phrase, of course, that people will use kind of casually and not really think about it, but uh, as a metaphor for kind of the larger political and social dimensions of Riddell's uh, vision as an artist, I think it's very, very suggestive of the kind of larger interconnections in society and how interdependent we are as human beings on one another and the sense of sort of responsibility and and moral moral imagination that needs to be brought to the larger social sphere. I think it's a great title. Its author is a distinguished art critic named Eleanor Hartney, who's published on a on a variety of subjects. Uh, as I say in my review, I'm I'm a little disappointed by the text uh, in this in this case. It seems like, as I phrased it, the author is sort of phoning it in. Um, but the, the amazing thing about this book is just how handsomely produced it is in terms of the quality of the four-color reproductions and the um, just the thoughtful uh, way the table of contents is laid out by thematic groupings of kind of major interests of hers. It's not just a, a kind of old-fashioned chronological version. So even though I feel that the, the text often fails to do justice to 
the quality of your artist. I'm I'm really delighted that the book exists and that it has, you know, got these other virtues that I think will, you know, pretty much self-evidently make the artist's achievement uh, palpable to, to the reader who, who really opens it. Um, I'll give you a chance to get a word in edgewise, but if you want me to give some background on the artist's life, I'm happy to do that. Please, please go right ahead. Rene Riddell was born in 1929 uh, in Birmingham, Alabama. Her father needed to find uh, work in the, the Depression and moved the family to Detroit, um, which is where she spent most of her time growing up. Uh, these were in the, this was in the 30s and the 40s, and her talent as an artist was evident uh, quite early on. And blissfully for for all of us, it was encouraged. And in fact, uh, during World War II, and she was just a very young girl, um, she was uh, making drawings that were um, sort of responses to wartime realities of various kinds and. They were singled out and eventually published in the Detroit News. So Renee Riddell's gifts were, were recognized very early on. Um, she wanted to uh, respond positively to a full scholarship that she had uh, received from the Pratt Institute, the Distinguished Pratt Institute in New York City, one of the great art schools of the country. And unfortunately, the only thing that the scholarship covered was the tuition and she realized that she was not able to survive uh, just with living expenses in New York City. And so she decided instead to go to the local Detroit Institute for the Arts, which of course is, has emerged as, as one of the more important arts institutions in, in America. So she didn't do too badly, but it wasn't quite her dream of, of getting to New York. That was something that would take her some decades and eventually uh, she ended up there, which is where she, she lives now to this day. But uh, just a, an artist with uh, great early talent and vision, someone who was very much aware of the kind of larger world, not only of art, uh, the trends in the art world and who the leading figures were, but increasingly of political and philosophical issues. And that's where I wanted to go with this. Greg, if you could tell us a little bit about that. Your, your first exposure to uh, Ms. Riddell's work was uh, very, very interesting That uh, in that you were working with Russell Kirk at the time when he selected one of her paintings as the cover for one of his works of fiction. Yes, well, one of uh, the central genres that uh, Russell worked in as a writer was kind of the ghost story or you might say kind of supernatural thriller. And uh, at the time, he was about to publish his book called Lord of the Hollow Dark. And uh, as, as the title intended, you're supposed to get a sort of spooky feeling about, you know, sort of uh, evil and, and uh, kind of the sort of thriller uh, elements that the one would take away from such a title. And uh, he chose a photograph and I was assisting him at the time uh, as his kind of uh, young young man Friday. And uh, he picked this painting by Rene Riddell called The Tide. And that became the cover of the original hardcover edition on the dust jacket. 
and it's uh, it's one of the more, I, I guess you might say, iconic of Riddell's paintings, at least in terms of the, just the immediacy of what it conveys. So it it shows essentially a group of adult uh, human beings fully dressed in sort of your typical uh, shades of garb uh, from the businessman to kind of the middle-aged lady and so on. And they're shown sort of, three quarters submerged in water and they all sort of have this, they're all kind of leaning with the tide. That is, they're sort of being, they're sort of passively uh, being moved along with the tide. And you have to look very carefully to see anything that's, that's, that's an exception to the rule, but there is one fairly discernible figure whose back is turned to us. So we have to really work as a viewer to kind of find this, this figure and, the back is turned to us, and it looks like there's a kind of energetic motion going on, as if this is perhaps the sole, the sole figure who is is actually actively swimming and swimming in the opposite direction to the way that those in the tide are going. And clearly, um, this has a kind of larger allegorical dimension to it. I, at the time, being a callow youth, um, just thought, "Ooh, weird, spooky." And thought, you know, nothing much more of it at the time. I was only just learning uh, that I really did have a passion for the visual arts as well as my my normal expertise, which is literature. And so <clears throat> it wasn't until I received a review copy of this book, basically, you know, nearly four decades later, that I, I suddenly realized that uh, this was a great artist <laughs> whose work I had missed all those years. And so it reconnected me with Riddell's work and it made me realize that Russell, you know, wasn't just kind of randomly picking a piece of art, but, uh, but championing a, an artist who he believed in. And in fact, uh, really he was one of the low soul figures, I think in America who really fully recognized Riddell's genius. And so I'm, I'm sort of ashamed that I, I kind of missed the, the boat early on and, in writing this review, I felt, in a way, like I was kind of making up for lost time and atoning for my past sin. Or, as Russell would say, redeeming the time. Well, God willing. God willing. And one of the things that uh, I noticed about the, the, the painting in question is you bring up that it's allegorical in nature, and it, it certainly is, because when when I look at it and I, I see the one lone figure, I, I think of uh, the, the famous remark made by William F. Buckley Jr., where he said that he was a conservative as standing astride history, yelling stop. And that, to me, is what this painting is a depiction of. Yeah, there's no doubt that, you know, this is part of Riddell's uh, passion for kind of social commentary and social critique. And uh, it runs really throughout her work. Um, you know, a lot of people tend to pigeonhole female artists as people who have like an expertise in the domestic life and painting children. And, and that's actually part of Riddell's achievement and certainly in the early part of her career and, and actually quite movingly and poignantly so as she painted her husband and five children growing up. And that's really um, certainly part of her achievement as a whole. But very quickly, very early on, she she demonstrated that, you know, she was as passionate about kind of larger political and social realities as as any contemporary artist could be. And 
you know, this involved her being quite well aware and friends with Russell Kirk. Um, she and her professor husband, Lloyd Riddell, were widely read. They were, uh, among other things, they were interested in mid-20th century Catholic thinkers like the great Jacques Maritain, uh, who himself was the champion of, of modern art. Um, you know, a lot of conservatives in the mid to late 20th century have taken a pretty negative view of modern art, and they usually refer to it as if the word, you know, always had capital letters and as if it was always bad. And certainly there's a lot of justification for that. It doesn't take uh, long to be able to find a lot of contemporary art that's either shoddy or kind of a, a sham in certain ways. There's all, all kinds of outrage that, that's been committed, but to be so sweeping in condemnation of of modern art really does a disservice to many conservatives' ability to engage the larger culture. And it was actually something that Russell Kirk never did. I mean, he he could certainly be critical of trends in modern art and literature, but as a champion of writers like not only T.S. Eliot, who was himself a conservative and a Christian believer, but also of kind of much more controversial and and sometimes um you know edgy uh modern writers like Wyndham Lewis um and uh and Ezra Pound uh Kirk had a very discerning taste in the way that modernism in its various forms could um be a major art form and so for Kirk it wasn't really was it modern versus was it not but was it good was it you know was the vision persuasive and truly imaginative and so uh renee riddell whatever you want to think about her uh is a modern artist i mean the work reflects a lot of the major trends of 20th century art including expressionism and yes it's figurative you can see that she's always wedded to representing the world and that in one sense might seem traditional but it's not photographic it's it's very painterly it's very expressive with the brush strokes and colors that are not necessarily realistic uh but that that's not to contradict her capacity to have this larger conservative critique of of modern political trends well terrific greg wolf i thank you so much for coming to or consenting to talk to us today about web of circumstance of new book out on Rene Riddell's paintings and sketches and and what have you. So uh, thank you again for, for joining us. My pleasure. All right. And for Upstream, I'm your host, Bruce Edward Walker. We'll speak with you next week. And that draws uh, to a close another edition of Radio Free Acton. Thanks to Carolyn Roberts and Bruce Edward Walker for handling the interviewing duties today. Thank you to Joe Carter, senior editor here at the Acton Institute, for joining us to talk about some of his recent work on the Acton Power blog. And uh, I want to encourage you as well to visit the Power blog. Great resource for anyone who needs news information or opinion from an Acton perspective five days a week, Monday through Friday. You can find it at blog.acton.org. And thanks as well uh, to uh, Gregory Wolf. 
of Image Magazine. He's the editor uh, of that magazine based out of Seattle. Thanks for bringing some of your insight to the podcast this week as well. Uh, thank you as well to all of you who join us on a weekly basis to listen. If you haven't subscribed to Radio Free Acton, please do so. You can do so on iTunes. Uh, you can do so on Google Play. The links uh, to subscribe will be in the post with this uh, with this podcast. And uh, if you know of folks who might benefit from listening to some Acton uh, radio right here on Radio Free Acton, well, uh, send them the links uh, and uh, tell them to sign up and spread the word about the Acton Institute and the work that we're doing to build a free and virtuous society. Until next time, folks, have a great day. We will talk with you then. So long. The Acton Institute in Grand Rapids, Michigan, has been promoting a free and virtuous society for over 25 years. Working with religious leaders, educators, business leaders, and students from all over the world, Acton is the connection between religion and business based on sound economic and moral principles. To support the great work that the Acton Institute does around the world, visit give.acton.org today. Again, that's give.acton.org.